be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. My name is Dan Cottrell and with me for the podcast, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Andy Abraham. Andy is a leading teacher and researcher in coaching, and he will tell us a little bit more about that uh, in a moment. However, I was particularly interested to catch up with him because he's an expert in, as I said, coaching and has a lot to offer there through the work he does. Yet he's a relative novice to rugby. So with that in mind, I think there's a few questions which are worth asking someone who's seen it from the outside and then is on the inside trying to work out how they would approach something maybe for the first time. So anyway, first of all, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And I think the first thing we must do is just get a little bit of background on where you are in terms of your work and just a little bit on where you are in terms of your rugby coaching. Okay, um, yeah, happy to do that. So um, I'm what's known as the head of subject at Leeds Beckett University uh, in the area of sport coaching. So head of subject for sport coaching, we've got um, 23 members of staff, including myself in there. Uh, that's, so I have re- responsibility for that group. Um, and probably my responsibility lies in not interfering too much as uh, any good leader hopefully does. Um, so... But, that's what I try and do. Um, I think my staff might have, uh, my staff, there's a majority of term. But anyway, um, so within that, uh, as much as I have a responsibility to line manage uh, that, um, that, that group, um, I'm also involved in teaching and researching as well. So within the teaching, I work on our undergraduate degree and our postgraduate degrees in, in sport coaching. I'm also very lucky to supervise some PhD students whose work might uh, end up filtering into this conversation today. Um, but broadly speaking, I have four areas that I suppose I work in in terms of my interest, my research, my teaching, which is um, understanding sport performance, uh, understanding coaching and coaching practice, uh, how we develop that practice, and then finally, um, how we develop the developers of that practice, if you like. So um, we're currently doing a big project for the Football Association, working with uh, around about 28 of their coach developers on a postgraduate diploma, who are no, those are the guys who work in the professional game at both the senior men's, but also within the academies as well. So those are my, my four main areas of sport performance, coaching practice, developing coaching practice, and then developing the developers. Okay, can I just uh, jump in there? And when you say that you are working with, say, the FA, Mm. is that at the top end or at the bottom end? And just a sort of supplementary question, Mm. how different is it uh, in terms of the learning and research for both ends of the spectrum of coaching? Yeah, the the guys we work with are known as the um, the elite delivery team. So they are coach developers who um, who work in the professional game. Uh, it's an interesting situation for the FA. You know, I'm aware that they've they've like a lot of governing bodies have had grief about their coach development practices, uh, and so this is where I probably be defend the um, the FA very strongly is that they've invested a huge amount of money in. Uh, 
professional development of their coach development team. So whilst we're working with the elite delivery team, and so those are guys who will go into football clubs to support the coaches in the academies of those football clubs, um, right across the 92 league clubs. Um, there's also the, some of the guys who work with the um, and delivering their UEFA licenses for uh, coaches who go into the senior men's game as well. And there's also some guys on there from the Professional Football Association, so the, the union, so they deliver some coach development courses as well. Um, so that is, they're known as the elite delivery team who work in the professional game. So we're working with them. But having said that, equally, the, um, uh, the, within the, there's a, they've got a massive team of coach developers working in the grassroots game. And so I know that uh, University of Worcester are supporting some of those guys through a postgraduate program as well. So the, the FA have done a huge amount to, to upskill their coach developers. Um, so that's the first part of that question. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's fine. And now the second part, because there's a third part coming. Right. So the second part is in terms of what's different, The probably the key difference is, is the amount of time that the coach developers have to spend with the coaches. Um, so the coaches that the elite delivery team work with are typically um, somewhere between half and full-time. There's, there's still quite a lot of part-time um, hourly pay coaches within the professional game depending on where clubs are in terms of what they can afford. But they are generally working with coaches who are half to full time, who have very specific um, uh, professional needs in terms of the way in which they support the players. So there's a much greater opportunity to support those coaches within those programs. Um, So, you know, these are guys who are essentially, if you're looking at the academy program, you know, some of these academies are recruiting from the age of eight or nine. Um, you know, some of those guys may well be in that situation for 13 years. If they you know, by the time 13, 14 years, by the time they make a first team, um, uh, get a first team cap. So, you know, that's a long, long journey they're taking people on. Um, and so, you know, and it's a very difficult journey as well. You know, there's been some accusation within literature about saying this is the commodification of children. Um, and yet, again, I know that the emphasis that the FA have looked at is uh, coaching, which is specific to the needs of children. Um, and so they are they work very hard to um, focus on what does it mean to be the coach of a child. Um, so that's probably that's the elite delivery game. I can't comment quite as much on the um, on the grassroots game, but. Again, the, the FA have employed a lot of mentors to, um, I think, again, these mentors are part-time. Some of our students have uh, managed to get some of these roles. And they're, up, they're out to support coaches at, at the grass, grassroots level, again, to try and change the way in which um, coaches engage with children uh, and uh, you know, and provide a, a safe and uh, engaging environment for children. So, like I say, that, that sort of big ch- difference between those two areas, I think, is the amount of time that the coaches, coach developers work with the coaches and the problems that those coaches face probably. I think we will come back and talk about mentors in the game because I think that's something that the RFU is looking at mm. quite carefully. And uh, I think all uh, rugby unions are thinking about. Uh, one question which I think probably lots of uh, rugby coaches wonder is that here's all this money being poured into coaching at the top level mm-hmm. yet the managers stand in a little box on the side of the pitch and shout instructions on 
that doesn't seem to be something that you would probably see typically being taught on a um, a coaching course. So how come they still do it? Yeah, the we've we've had some conversations about this about what is coaching. So that goes back to one of the questions that I've I've been looking at is what is coaching? What is it that that, that can define this? And so we we talk about coaching being this idea of a decision making process. Um, so coaches have to fundamentally make a decision based on what are they seeing, what are they perceiving, what are the goals. I need to form some sort of judgment um, in order to reach a decision to in, implement a behaviour. If you take that at a very simplistic level, you can then say, okay, so what environments does, does that occur? So you could argue that um, those decisions have to be made in planning. Those decisions might be, have to be made in terms of talking to a parent. Those decisions might be made in terms of doing one-to-one with uh, with, with um, players. So it's interesting that um, if you look at the work that, uh, that Michael Carrick's been asked to do at Manchester United, he's he, he's been asked to work with players one-on-one off the pitch. Um, but you can go on, but eventually you get to the point of saying, so coaches or managers have to make these judgments at the side of a pitch during the game. So there's n- numerous environments within which coaches ply their practice, if, if that makes sense. Um, but you then look at a coach development program and go, how much can a coach development program reasonably cover? And so I think, firstly, you've got to ask the question, what is it we're trying to, what's this program of learning designed to prepare someone to do? And how do we best use the resource to do that? So is it any great surprise that perhaps more time has been spent on preparing coaches for coaching sessions rather than competition coaching? Probably not. But I do think there is a gap in coach development programs about competition coaching or game-based coaching. And I know that's something we we did a a small study for the Football Association. And that was something that junior coaches were asking for was – how do they coach within tournaments? How do they do? How can they help um, coaches? Uh, how can the FA help coaches do that better? So, I think it, it's you'll have seen this term used a lot on Twitter. It depends. It depends what you want to use the resource for. I think. So there is a gap in match day coaching, and certainly one that uh, no course I can think of in rugby really covers until you probably get right to the top end, mm-hmm. because there's so many factors involved in trying to develop the team momentum on the day and get them in the right frame of mind. And there's plenty of very good books out there with top coaches talking about their approaches and to use far back your phrase, it does depend on the day, on the players, on the situation and a whole load of other factors. Mm -hmm. Um, Now moving away from football Mm -hmm. and thinking about rugby, just quickly tell us, where your what your rugby coaching background is to this day yeah okay um well if we could go back many many years where i um moved from a comprehensive school to a uh, a private school called um Dorsey school in wiltshire um and this was just a, at the time it was at the my comprehensive didn't have a sixth form, so the county would pay for us to go and play rugby. Uh, sorry, play rugby, didn't pay for that. Uh, for us to go to the the private school to basically to do our sixth form, um, and that was my first introduction to playing rugby. Um, and I played it for two terms, uh, low sixth and upper sixth. Did okay. Also did some made some pretty horrendous errors, 
So that was my introduction to rugby. So I started watching it as a result of that. So I've watched rugby for a long period of time. Uh, then fast forwards to probably five years ago. Um, uh, my son was six. I live in a, um, a rugby town. Uh, and so his mates were going to rugby, so we went along. Um, and they said, are there any volunteers? And I thought it would be a bit hypocritical if I didn't volunteer, given the job I, I, I had. Um, so that was, like I say, five years ago. But up until that point, I'd never coached rugby in my life. I'd only played it for a couple of terms. So I didn't know rugby particularly well, and I'd never coached it. So I was, you know, in, to all intents and purposes, irrespective of what I knew in terms of my background of having worked in coaching and coach education for, by that time, probably the best part of 18 years, um, I was a ranked novice rugby coach. Um, and so I... And not only was I a ranked novice rugby coach, I was a ranked novice rugby coach trying to coach my own son, which it, as well wasn't always the most joyful experience, if I'm being honest, because I don't think either of us really knew how to cope with that situation. Um, and I suppose, given I was the more senior of the two of us, I mean, why would a six-year-old know how to cope with that? But I really didn't know how to cope with that, to be honest. So very much a ranked novice rugby coach, but with probably some tools to make sense of that novice nature fairly quickly although i'm not sure it's been as quick as i'd wanted it to be sometimes i'm sure that there's a number of people nodding uh, and riley smiling at the hassle stresses of coaching your own child yes. and i'm i'm certainly one of them and he might even be listening into this now now that he's uh, 18 and uh, he is uh, considering coaching and how coaches do do, do it mm-hmm. and the problem problems behind it now it's a fairly unique well there's no such thing as fairly unique but it's a fairly unusual situation that you came into this um as a a novice rugby player with a bit of background but a lot of coaching background mm-hmm. so just in those i mean i never think that coaching six or seven year olds is a particularly easy job it's more like herding cats yeah. what sort of things in those first couple of years in terms of your coaching background helped you out and what sort of things did you change? Um, certainly in terms of my my understanding of coaching, because um, even, you know, it was actually really my first, I'd done a lot of coach education work, but it was actually really my first uh, long-term coaching role. I'd, I'd done some goalkeeping coaching when I was at university, when I, my first job, um, but this was really my first coaching role. Um, but in terms of what helped most, probably things like keep the activity short, um, keep them moving. So I had a sense of we were trying to, at that age, it was about the development of fundamental skills. It wasn't necessarily about teaching rugby. It was we were using rugby as a vehicle rather than teaching rugby, if that makes sense. Um, it was about lots of opportunities. So, you know, no lines, uh, lots of balls, lots of opportunity, and um, and the use of trying to get games going. Because realistically, at the age of six, we were doing one hour a week. So, you know, it wasn't a huge amount. The following year, it went up to uh, two hours a week. Um, and that's when we started playing games the following year. Because for the first year, there, were, there was no games. It was just Sunday mornings, kids come along, we did stuff. Um, but in terms of what helped me most, it was... Remember they're six, so be patient. Um, remember this is about them enjoying themselves, about exploring how a, a 
things work. Um, but also, you know, it's not a free for all. You know, one of the tweets I, I had yesterday was that, you know, that you introduced yesterday about the um, the nature of someone who might not want to be there. Now, this was not about them not wanting to be there. You know, at six, it's, you put a ball in from the kids at that age, and they they want to mess around, mess around with it, literally mess around with it. Um, although, actually, in hindsight, there was one who didn't particularly, but. But between that, fundamental skills, lots of opportunity, game-like exercises, that helped me a lot in that first year. Um, in terms of what I learned from that and from the following year was, well, funny enough, one of the things I learned was, as a club, we lose the expertise as soon as the year finishes because everything I'd learned about that year was yeah. something that would have been useful for me to know at the beginning of the year. Um, so we have tried to create a situation where people pass on their experiences. So one of the things that I've done deliberately is at the beginning of the year or before if we can, is I've spoken to the coach in the year above me to say, okay, come on, what are the key things I need to be looking for for this year? Um, because there is the – I think we need to be very aware of actually how little time we have with them. So for the first year, it was one hour a week. For probably by the time you re- remove the, um, the the bad weather weeks, probably something around about twenty five weekends, and probably even less by the time you take some holidays off, some half terms off. You know, so it's twenty five hours at maximum, probably. Um, even when you go to two hours a week, it's fifty hours. You just have to be pretty um, pragmatic about what you can achieve in that time. So that's one of the things I again I've learned. So I've known about um, don't firefight. Just because you do something badly in a game doesn't mean you then have to work on that the following week. It's have a plan about what it is you want to achieve over the year and try to avoid firefighting where you can because, you know, otherwise kids just get confused what you're trying to do with them. So I think that's a pro- – I'm just jump in there. Hmm. Uh, sometimes I ask coaches, how much rugby do your your teams watch? And – they will they with uh, without really doing much research. They pretty much know that there's not much rugby watched. And uh, I asked it of a, a first fifteen coach of a very good school, mm-hmm. and he says he reckons that less than half of them watch any rugby over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I'm reflecting now. That's not a bad thing because um, we, if you watch the the, the pro game, the, the top level game, even first 15 rugby or a uh, very good under 16s rugby, it does not look anything like under 10s and under 11s rugby. No. Yet lots of coaches will come away from watching a weekend rugby on the television and not understand what their game looks like. So I, I wonder uh, whether it would be possible for a coach from the previous season to show some videos of matches and just say, look, this is when we played quite well, and this is what it looked like. Mm. And then you've got a realistic idea of the fact that the ball doesn't whiz out from <laughs> nine to ten. Uh, <laughs> no, really two players can't clear every ruck, and the fact is that lots of players don't really have the well, the fundamental movement skills to produce some of the plays or the dynamic rugby that you expect. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very important point. That you said that that just Thinking, uh, and also there's some mentoring there, because one of the things uh, you mentioned earlier on is uh, how the FA are using mentoring. Oh. And 
how important it is the coach from the year above can be to the coach from the year below. And that, and again, I'm just going to call on my own experience is that despite the fact that I had been coaching for a very long time, I found that the coach in the year above, who was a lot less experienced as a coach, was a very helpful in terms of helping me understand perhaps some of the behaviors and some of the problems which were coming up in the next year it does make a difference mm. so you, you would you would definitely promote that and you've been promoting that through the club is that right yeah absolutely i i, I mean like coming back to saying you know there's there's only a limited amount of time and i think there is there's a um, it was actually something that, um, again, one of the times we've interviewed uh, one of the football coaches is he talked about the, um, that his newer coaches that he had in, as he said, the, one of the biggest problems was that they'd not seen a 13-year journey because they couldn't have done because they've only been the, do, doing a job two or three years. So he says it's, they, they've not seen the peaks and troughs that a player would go through. And this is a player who's playing probably three or four times a week. And he says it... it you know, we talk about this idea of non-linearity. I mean, what does non-linearity mean? It means there's peaks and troughs. There's, you know, sometimes a trough will take you below where you, um, you know, something back towards where you were a year before or something. So, I think the idea of being realistic about what you can achieve in the time that you've had or you have is one of my key lessons. Um, and just to have that patience of saying they could be playing this game for, you know, if someone comes in at six. They might still be playing when they're forty, you know, especially if they're if they're doing touch and pass, which the RFU is pushing now. There's, there's potentially twenty to thirty years worth of time for this person to learn things. So the notion of saying to someone who's in the year above me, going, "What are the key um, things that I should be looking for within this that we can reasonably do within the time?" And generally, it's a guy called Marco Alaska, and he will say. If you get, um, so this year he would talk about, you know, recognizing what it looks like to have two in a rook rather than one in a rook, um, that kids will start to pass more. So can they get the ball moving a bit more? So again, I've seen a lot of that this year. Um, and, you know, and if I was offering some advice to having just finished the under 11s, to, so what would I say to the current under 11s, uh, the guy who's going to come up into the under 11s, it would be, encourage them to move the ball more because they actually do start to do it. Whereas the year before, um, there was still a lot of what our class has been selfish play, um, which again is fine. It, you know, it's selfishness is one of the characteristics of children. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but it's at under 11s, they seem to start to recognize what happens if you do move the ball. And again, not all the time, you know, some days, We'd still get the people just want to run with the ball all the time. In other days, you know, they'd suddenly do something. You go, goodness, where's that come from? And it's brilliant to watch. So, so yeah, absolutely, I think drawing on the expertise that's just gone before you is a is a really well. I found it incredibly helpful. Being, as I say, someone who is a novice coach who each year becomes novice again in some ways because it's a new year, new set of rules. Um, sorry, new set of laws, not rules and laws. Um, that you have to negotiate. Um, it's in, in one of the things I've done as a novice coach is I've gone on. Uh, I've deliberately engaged myself in refereeing um, to try and learn more about the game. Uh, it, but also helps me shut up <laughs> because I'm not stood in the touchline as well. But um, but I found that really useful to, to engage in refereeing as well. 
Now, given your experience at this age group, there's quite a lot of research going on out there through the likes of uh, Carl Hendrick uh, and others um, who say that we need to be careful that child children, we have high expectations in sport of children doing a bit more independent learning. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're giving them the game, be the teacher, uh, letting them become uh, leaders. And yet there is a problem that because we don't, uh, and to use the jargon, we don't scaffold their the rugby around them. Mm-hmm. And we need to think more carefully about that. So uh, saving me from having to explain very poorly what scaffolding is, and how do you see our role as coaches in creating a situation which gives them enough independence without letting them sink uh, in all the information? Yeah, um within within the way in which we teach coaching and the way in which I actually use this, we talk about, we, we have a model which we class as being the who, what, how model, um, which is the idea is as a coach, you there is a who that you're coaching. So there's, so for me, it's a group of uh, 11 individual, sorry, not 11, it's, we've got 14 individual boys that, that are in our under 11s age group. So that who who are those people? How can I get to know them? What are their strengths and weaknesses? There's then a um, uh, and within those strengths and weaknesses, sorry, there is there are some people who will pick up things very quickly, and there'll be some people who will take them a little bit more time to get it. Um, and there are some people who are very fast, some people who are very slow. You know, there's a whole range of biological, psychological, and uh, physical differences within that group. There's then a, a, a curriculum that we as a, a group of coaches, so there's four of us in uh, at our under-11s team. So uh, beginning of last year, we sat down, we said, what is it that we think we're going to be able to do in the coming year? Um, so we have a, a curriculum of sorts that we're trying to follow, um, which I've sort of hoiked off um, one of my PhD students, a guy called Mike Ashford, a uh, very, very good rugby coaches, um, He's also the head coach at Harrogate Rugby Club. He's got some great ideas about how the game works. So, if, uh, you know, as I said to anyone, you know, if you can nick ideas off someone, you know, credit them with them, but nick away. Um, <laughs> then, um, and then the how bit is, generally speaking, how is it that we're going to deliver this curriculum to this who? Um, so scaffolding would be about saying, if we have this curriculum, broadly speaking, that we want to do, so like I, like I said, for us, it was about, from an attacking point of view, is getting the ball through the hands a bit more often um, and trying to create some spaces. Uh, and from a defensive point of view, it was being a bit braver in the tackle. Um, and by doing, and in order to do that, we were trying to encourage them to not just stand still. So when the opposite position moves, is that we would move up as a line some days it worked great, some days it really didn't work at all. Um, uh, and then we also had about how we were contesting for the ball in terms of uh, what even if we make a tackle, how do we get the ball back? If there's, a, if there's a rook, how do we get the ball back through that? And probably not a lot more than that, other than working with um, the boys on some, some of their own individual skills about how they would do that. So this idea of scaffolding, though, is, is then saying, well, if we've got that, is that if that's our curriculum, we've got our who. The scaffolding view would be saying, um, what bits do we put in place at different times in order to, to help those boys learn those skills? So, um, so, and that's where a, a well-designed curriculum can do that. So it may well be that, let's say, for example, we're talking about moving the ball. Um, 
we spent uh, a game we deliberately used was rugby netball um, because they, they're not allowed to run with the ball, but they can pass the ball in any direction. So it encourages them to use some uh, different passing methods. Um, but we would use that very deliberately to scaffold the fact that um, that we wanted certain passing movements being done. So we, for the initially, we outlawed that you couldn't, um, you know, throw overhead. It had to be from under the uh, under the shoulders, as it were. Um, so that so we used the constraints words. We would that was constraining a movement, but we deliberately used that as a way to get people to a point which meant that we, once we got to that point where the ball was moving really well, we then we kept doing that game, but that scaffolded us to the next game that we then started to do by the end of the season, which was doing much more of a touch rugby um, game. So it was building people up to a point which would allow us then to move to the next point. Which would So I think if we'd have just done... Um, uh, touch and pass type games to begin with it wouldn't have gone very well because the ball would have been dropped more I'm not sure get, the boys would have really understood what the game was about so we were just trying to put things in place to uh, allow them to uh, progress um, I'll well, stop at that point does that help? Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> well I'm going to say uh, uh, about progression mm. um, there, is a, there is a danger and I'd be very interested to hear your view is that uh, we do our coaching courses. And one of the things that is a tick box is that your session progresses. Mm -hmm. Now, my understanding of learning is that uh, learning happens uh, over a long period of time. You can't really tell if anyone's learned anything um, until maybe two, three, four, five weeks along the line. You, you, you can't test someone at the end of the session and say, well, you've learned that yes. because they're probably just repeating what you've said or they're, they're repeating something they've just been practicing for the last 20 minutes. So they probably know roughly what's going on. So in terms of the progression in the netball, I was fascinated that you said by the end of the season, I was going to say by the end of the session, I thought you were going to say, and I was wondering, I know it does depend but it, I sense that you're not progressing these games as fast as some coaches feel they should because it still gives the players a chance to develop skills within the game without pushing them to the next stage because they're enjoying the game, they're using them uh, more and more and more often, and therefore they're more comfortable. Is that the right sense or are you, are you, putting in, um, a, are you accelerating the progression a bit more than that? No, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, don't I mean, again, I have to remember that we're only seeing these boys. Uh, so even though this year we moved to trying to do a uh, a one hour Thursday session once every two weeks, but the weather you know during spring was just horrendous, so we missed loads because we've only got one floodlit pitch, and with every team using it, that pitch was then getting completely torn up, and, and there was a team that's meant to play on it at the weekend, so we eventually just had to say we we, we have to hold training for a bit, but. But, I mean, funny enough, we actually introduced rugby netball at the beginning of the under-10 season. Um, and it took a long time for them to get it. Uh, and I've, I've often said this to people about the... If you introduce a new task, whatever that task is, part of the learning bit is actually understanding how the task works before you can even start working out what it is you're meant to learn from the task, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I just jump in again. Uh, 
because there is there is an old saying is practice the skill not the drill mm. and i flip that and i say practice the drill first so you understand what's going on i know we don't like to use the word drill and we we'll use an activity instead or exercise let's understand where you're supposed to be running the goals and then you've got the space to explore uh, and experiment because you understand the constraints is would that be a fair way of flipping the the old saying yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's the whatever we give people there's some time taken to adjust to what it means so a game like rugby netball is quite a complex game so learning that you're not allowed to run with the ball for some kids took them quite a while to to crack hold of um learning that if you hold on to the ball for too long that you'll get surrounded by a group of kids and you can't do anything and then you just get frustrated. So there's a whole range of things which, um, so you learn about how the game works and then how you start to get better at playing the game. Um, and for us, like I said, we've been doing rugby netball for two years. The, the boys enjoy playing it um, because the ball moves, it's fast paced, you know, everyone gets lots of touches. Um so, yeah, I, I genuinely think there are some things that just take a long period of time to do. To, could we have done things quicker? Maybe we could have done. Um, it's uh, I'm not going to sit here and say we've got it com- completely right because I'm a novice coach, so I'm not going to – of course I'm not going to say but, Okay, you say you're a novice coach, hmm. uh, and a novice coach um, who is not, not coached in any other area, doesn't understand it, hmm. will not necessarily be reading the body language uh, and the – the what they're hearing from the players and you just said to me that they the players enjoy it surely the fact that they're enjoying it is is enough to suggest that they're then going to find ways to experiment within it yeah yeah and so you see um so one of the things we've introduced this year is saying um okay you can kick now so you can kick in rugby netball um and some of them start to see that actually if they were struggling to get the ball out of their bottom third, sorry, out of the defending third, that actually a well-placed punt um, moved the ball quickly. And, uh, I mean, you could look at it and go, the players are offside, but that wasn't really our issue. It's more about recognising that there's a time and place where they could use it. Um, so, uh, well, make, so, just make just make me feel a little bit better and perhaps some of the other coaches. A well-placed punt, how often did you see that happen? Within rugby netball, it's again. It was a um, sometimes it was just hoofed, and yes. you're going well. Yeah, that's not really that helpful. Um, but there's the odd time where the 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 team that had the ball, even though they were defending, one of the players would run, and the ball, and then someone would kick the ball to the player. So it wasn't just a punt. It was a it was a genuine. I can see someone over there. So I'm going to try and kick to them. Um, so sometimes it was just a, a hoof. Sometimes it was a, a directed kick to someone. Um, and we liked them to explore that. And we would, we would then talk about, well, is there somewhere where you're trying to put this ball? But, uh, but equally, you know, in some ways, it was just letting the game do the work a little bit. But, um, but I'll come back to your word about scaffolding, is we deliberately... Uh, put that in as saying you, you can kick this ball if you want to but just be aware that if you kick it you may well lose it um so you know so again it gave them the opportunity to think about should i kick and some of the boys were just kicking willy-nilly so you know that was someone that you would then have a talk to 
um, and just say, well, what is it you were trying to do there? Um, and I'm making this sound, sound, sound nice and lovely, but it might be we just go, uh, Oi, Joe. We haven't had a player called Joe, so I'll say, Oi, Joe, was that the best thing you could have done? And they might go, oh, right, yeah, see what you mean. Um, so, it, you know, I'm not saying that this was the most perfect session ever, but, but yeah, we allowed them to use the, the game uh, to allow to, to experiment, but for us also to then, it gives us an opportunity to give them some feedback and some, uh, some ideas that they could work with, which might be a direct instruction, as in, I think you'd do better if you actually kicked it to the person who was down rather than just kicking it away. Or we might ask a question depending on time frame, saying, "Was there a different thing, you, a different opportunity you could have taken there?" And also the fact that it's quite chaotic, and as you're saying yourself, you how you sometimes deliver that question is not as perfect as you want. But the very fact that you've intervened at that moment mm-hmm. can be very effective. Now, one of the things which is coming across more and more in research is that if you give a whole team feedback at the end of a session. Very few of the players actually tune in, Yeah, uh, least of all probably your own child. <laughs> and uh, they may have forgotten the moment. Yet in, if you can give that feedback to them in the moment, they can make a, a possible adjustment. They might not make it immediately, but at least they've had a chance to reflect on it. Yeah. So just get, uh, continue with this rugby netball game, which uh, is fascinating in itself because uh, we want to play games in training. And obviously, you've adjusted the game to suit the players and the situation. How long does one of these games tend to go on for? And is there a point where the players say, oh, can we stop this and go and play some contact? Yes, yes and yes. Uh, sorry, I'm not sure there was a yes to the first one. But yes, players do ask, can we, can we, can we play rugby? Um, and, uh, and of course, we say, yeah, I mean, it's they're there to play rugby. Um how long do they go on? Sometimes, you know, you, um, you you take a bit of a, well, it seems to be, they seem to be enjoying this. The ball's moving well. Uh, it's getting what we want. So sometimes it perhaps drag on longer than it needed to. Um, so generally speaking, we would use it typically as our warm-up. Um, so with kids of that age, we don't worry. So we, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of warm-up should be dynamic. They should include the ball, um and because we've only got 14 players and quite often we might not get two of them turning up anyway. So a game of six aside, rugby netball, everyone would touch the ball quite a lot very quickly and, um, and there's a lot of activity going on. So it might be, if it was on a game day, it might be 10 minutes and then we would perhaps move on to um, a, a game of uh, four on four just to um, get again get the ball moving. And within that, we might just spend a bit of time uh, making sure that the ball went to ground, so we perhaps practice a bit of rucking within there as well. Um, so on a game day, that'd be like that. On a um, if we had the opportunity to do some evening practice, again, it'd be used as a warm up activity. Uh, and again, it sort of depended on how cold it was, because you know, as any rugby coach knows, the weather can play a massive role in what you're able to do. Um, so it might be we'd spend quite a lot of time doing it because it was keeping the kids active. Um, but then, like I say, as the year's gone on this year, we've moved more to doing some um, touch and pass games. Uh, and Because the other thing about touch and pass is I know coaches aren't meant to get involved when kids are playing, but with touch and pass we could do. 
because there was no tackling, but that allows us to demonstrate some ideas we were trying to get get to them, which is so as we get towards the end of the year, we're talking about can you draw a defender before you pass? Or can you actually get through a defender and then pass? Um, so we could demonstrate that a little bit with uh, by engaging with them touch and pass as well anyway. Um, I, th- I think I've forgotten your question now. Uh, no, that's okay. Well, it's uh, you've covered quite a few of what uh, the ideas, which were how long you want to run it for, when does it change, when is it appropriate, and also the idea of weather and how, how important that is. And uh, certainly on cold days, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, I always encourage younger kids to bring gloves. That's yes. Probably someone will be writing in and saying that's terrible. They should learn to play without gloves wasn't like that in my day and the other thing is that uh, actually um the ball itself does tend to be cold and that makes it worse for the players so they if they're carrying a cold ball all the time and just keep them off the ground yeah i, uh, I remember stop. speaking to um i don't know if you know mark luffman um yeah you was it uh, was at carnegie and i was having a chat with mark and he was he, he i think he used to coach the or perhaps still does the his son's team at ilkley he said they had a rule is by the time you get the third child is, is crying, it's time to call it off. <laughs> and I completely <laughs> empathise with what he was saying. And yes, there are some kids who are very resilient and robust, but there's some kids who aren't. And, you know, it's not fair to them to say, no, you can't wear gloves. If you're cold, put some gloves on. I, you know, I really, I really, I'm looking at a 10-year-old boy going, if you're cold, put more clothes on. That's what I've done. You know, I'm stuck there refereeing in skins, uh, you know, uh, a rugby shirt and a, uh, a a sweatshirt and a and waterproof. So, okay, well, if, I, if I've got all this stuff on, by all means, put more clothes on. But, but I mean, I just this probably is something that I think is worth us talking about. Though is um, one of the things which I think rugby struggles with because of this is um, there's one of my uh, a good friend of mine called Pam Richards who's done some work in hockey and net, netball and rugby actually um where she talks about slow off field fast on field um so she what she refers to is that there are because team sports are complex there are certain things which are best taught off off pitch where you're trying to get people to recognize how a game works um such as rugby and the problem is that 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 well for us at least that facility doesn't exist so so when I'm talking to you about doing rugby netball, I'm very conscious of when it's uh, February, I've got to get the boys moving, and but doing something which I think is facilitating their development. So rugby netball lends itself to that. So does touch and pass. Um, a game which includes uh, rucking uh, and tackling does that as well. But you, I find you need more, sometimes need a bit, a few more numbers because if, if a ruck forms and you've only got four aside, then there's no one to pass the ball to. Um, and I'm sure there's a better rugby coach out there going, ah, oh, Andrew, you could do this. And I'd be delighted to hear what that, that is. <laughs> but um, but the, the lack of off-pitch space where you can, you can, you know, just for 15 minutes, talk to the boys about saying, look, here's the plan for today. Um, we're trying to get you to recognise, let's say, for example, so next year we're, I think we'll probably move to putting some, um, and again, I'm guessing on this a little bit because of my noviceness, but I'd like us to put a bit more depth on, on our line when it comes, when a rook forms or when, a, um, or when we've got a, a scrum because at the moment they're very, very flat 
Uh, and even if they can pass the ball, the, the defence is generally very much in their face. So I just want them to see what dif- differences if you put a bit of depth on the ball. Um, that's pretty difficult to explain with, with a group of kids when it's, you know, four degrees C and they're looking at you going, can we just play, please? Whereas, you know, if we had a drier space, it was warmer and it can be explained and maybe a video can be shown about saying, oh, look, you know, here's how an international team do it. We don't want you to do that, but just look how they're lined up. We'd like you to line up like that. Then that would allow a greater facilitation of on the pitch fast time because you're completely right in terms of the research. If you look at fast decisions, the research from naturalistic decision-making would say, it's better to give immediate feedback with, when you're working on fast decisions. Because like you say, if you get to the end of the session and you start trying to take people through it, it's too late. The decision's gone and they can't remember it because it was it was fast. Mm. Um, so, you know, so I, I really like Pam's work about this idea of slow off pitch, fast on pitch. Um, and I suppose uh, what would be interesting would be to understand what those sorts of things that you would do off the pitch mm-hmm. and uh, the, the, some of the things you're talking about there are you are reaching out in your own mind to situations where it would be good to be able to explain this and what what is that and that's something I think which is a challenge for maybe the more experienced coaches to say well and the actually what what is worth if you've got a chance to explain to them is this this and this mm-hmm. and under 12s the shape of the game changes a little bit more because they're more rucks in there for those who are uh, not familiar with the RFU laws uh, when you go from 11 to 12 you're allowed as many as you like into a ruck and uh, that often really means it's still the same couple going in but four or five people just stand around on the edge but yeah. it does change it does change the shape of the game and uh, the sort of things areas you're looking at are, are are key factors and key principles of the game in terms oh. of go forward and do they do they need to be done in the slow or do they need to be done on the pitch is is a debate which we could certainly have. Now, I'm conscious I've taken up some of your very valuable time, Andy, and it's been brilliant to talk to you. And I'm really hoping that I'll be able to get you uh, back on because three or four questions jumped out at me as we went on, which I would like to explore in, in more depth. But just, just to... To almost conclude, mm-hmm. now you're moving from 11s to 12s, mm-hmm. um, and you've got the the under 10s coach comes to you and says, "I'm moving to the under 11s next year." You you have hinted at some of the things you said. What would be the couple of things that you would say in say rugby terms, and perhaps in just as a coach, what would you say to them? I've put you on the spot, I know, because yeah, you're probably I, I having to reflect now yeah. on the whole season in a very short space of time. It, so it would be, so from a defensive point of view, it would be continue to work, uh, work on getting them to move up as a line um, and to uh, encourage them to recognise that um, that tackling, so one of the, we, I know we've talked in the past about tackling, is that just improving changing, getting better people's bravery. So um, especially the ones who typically just want to dangle a hand out at, which I'm saying that which sounds derogatory. It's not. It's just the reality. Yeah. Um, I've done it plenty of times. Yeah. um, You know, just become a little bit braver and see if they can wrap arms rather than just try and shirt tug. 
Um, and for the kids who are better than that is to perhaps work on, um, you know, wrap arms and see if you can drop the arms and get down to the legs. So that's the sort of stuff around defensive, but also in terms of rucking would be to improve body position in, in rucking. Because um, again, it tends to be people push with their arms rather than push with their shoulders. Uh, from a an attacking point of view, it would be to encourage greater ball carrying in two hands rather than one. So you know, rather than, uh, I get the ball, the ball goes under my under my arm and I start running, um, and to encourage uh, a greater amount of passing amongst the team so they get to understand how a ball moves. It's not. I'm not. Int- I, I still think boys should learn how to run with the ball because um, running with the ball will in- encourage uh, develops their agility skills. So I, I've got no problem with people perhaps putting the ball under arm and running because I think you know running at a defender and learning how defenders move is, is not a bad thing. But um, but I think I've seen more enjoyment from the boys this year when they score what they feel like is a good team try. So some focus on just getting the ball through the hands would be, I suppose, from a defensive and attacking point of view, would be my um, reflections on the year based on yeah, <laughs> being put on the spot. <laughs> well, no, uh, and in a, in a sense, it just gives pointers to all coaches, really, to think, well, what, what, is, what is practical? What, what could I be working on? And uh, it's interesting sometimes when you hear coaches saying, well, next year I've got to do this or uh, they've got to learn how to play on the bigger pitch. And, the reality is it's not that it's something completely different yeah, yeah. Uh, and sometimes the, sh- the the shock is after five weeks you think well we spent all this time doing this and actually we should have been doing that and if only someone had told me yeah anyway, and it's been brilliant and i i really hope we can get you back on again because uh, there's a number of other things that i'd love to quiz you on uh, and uh, pick your brains on expertise wise so thank you again for your time no problem. And the yeah, Ed would be delighted to come back and have a chat again. That'd be no problem. Great. Well, and that's fantastic. And I've, I've, I know the coaches who are listening in will have uh, been very interested in your views. And I'm sure that they would want to comment on uh, some of your ideas and um, how they might implement it. Yeah. So that, that's uh, that's it for this podcast. Um, pop over to the rugbycoachweekly.net site and click on the blog tab to find out uh, where to access more podcasts. Uh, But thank you, Andy, and thanks all for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.